Hello and welcome to episode 58 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan Francesco. I'm the deputy editor of Southside Technology. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, the U.S. editor of Waters Technology, Anthony Malikian. Why am I here, Dan? I thought that uh, I was going to have a week off from this and that uh, I wouldn't have to do this here, Dan. Yeah, so change of plans. Uh, originally, although I don't think we had mentioned it on the podcast, originally I was heading to Toronto this week and uh, we had a guest lined up to appear, an exciting guest, which hopefully, knock on wood, we will have um, in the coming weeks. Not going to say anything because I don't want to jinx it. Um, so to make a very long and awful story short, mm-hmm. my 6.30 a.m. flight out of LaGuardia on today's Wednesday on today's Thursday on Wednesday my 6 30 a.m. flight out of LaGuardia on Wednesday which I had to wake up for at 3 30 in the morning uh, was canceled at 11 a.m. which also included uh, myself sitting on a on the runway expecting to take off at any second for three hours then going back that to would the gate. send me into a panic attack I, I'm claustrophobic and I don't like heights that would literally have sent me into a panic attack yeah I mean fortunately I'm a bigger guy I'm six foot two you know well over 200 pounds at this point in the this point in the year you know packing on some some weight for the winter season uh and uh it was uh, it was it wasn't too bad because it was a two and two and i had the two seats to myself but definitely not ideal to uh to sit on a plane yeah. um but uh you know yeah. we you know so here i am so here you are so that's why you know we're, we're getting Thrilled. this up later in the day on thursday um but you know what? Honestly, it was a uh, it was a blessing in disguise because, and I'm not saying this just to pump up, two very good features written by two of our colleagues, uh, one of whom will be on a bit later, Amelia David, uh, talking about RFQ platforms around ETFs. But to start, we're going to talk about Agilos Andreo's piece on uh, European CEFs, organized trading facilities, and how this is going to change the uh, European marketplace. Uh, with the January 2018 uh, deadline for MIFID II. So, I, you know, in the past, w- when um, when Amelia comes on, she'll be able to give kind of a, an overview of her piece. Agilos is our London reporter, so right now it's about 9 o'clock p.m. his time. So, yeah, it would uh, be tough to get yeah, him on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, since we didn't write it, I don't think it's – I don't know if I necessarily want to summarize it. I want you to read it. I think it's a really strong piece. Uh, what I do want to talk about is maybe some things, I don't know, we didn't talk about this before, but maybe some things that stand out to you about the piece. Is that is that cool with you? Yeah, you got to set some context, though, right, about what the story's about. And All right, what All right champ, talking. then you know what? How about you set the context? Sure, I'll, be, I'll happily do that, okay? So the story's just looking at how, um, starting in January, um, European firms, much like how in uh, October 2013, uh, in the U.S., uh, firms started trading on swap execution facilities, um, starting next year, in theory, um, thanks to uh, rules stemming out of the European Commission, uh, they'll be introducing organized trading facilities, OTFs. Um, the story that Agalos wrote is it largely lays out a very how, how similar um, OTFs are to CEFs um, and kind of talks about uh, some of the concerns and challenges that that uh, firms are having, uh, mainly around that there's a lack of, I mean, this is much like with CEFs, trying to build transparency, stuff like that, but there are reporting challenges, and then there are a lot of questions that still remain that still have to be answered in order for firms to get compliant. Um, so Agalos gets into that uh, throughout the story, but yes, Dan. So that's the biggest thing that jumps out to me, right? Right early on in the story, Agilos has I see because I went first. I was able to steal your thunder there a little bit. He has a great, you know, he's got a great source in uh, someone at the with the French regulators over the uh, the AMF, um, 
essentially saying, you know, Agilos asked the question, can we, you know, the, the, the rule is, so essentially in there's uh, level one, which has been made available, right? The legislative text, but then level two still needs to be completed. And that's for firms to receive details about how they are required to operate them in terms of these, uh, these OTFs, right? And the source says, we have questions ourselves as well. We are trying to answer them as soon as possible, but that doesn't mean tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. So they, I think they said, they told, they told us, they told Agilos, uh, no later than June this year. Okay, so you get the text out June this year. It's not going to be a two-pager, right? We're talking thick, heavy, compliance-ridden legal jargon, that right? still might have need more clarification. Okay, so that comes out in June. Now, the deadline for this is January 2018. So that's six months, yes. give or take. It's going to take a couple months just to, to read through and understand everything that's been written. Then you need to start building, implementing, testing. I, I mean, we've already been down this road with MIFID 2 before, right? We've already been down this road with delays. And you hear about how, oh, there's not going to be a delay. There can't be a delay. And granted, this is just one portion of MIFID 2. And I understand that they have a lot of things they need to sort out. And that's kind of the point that's made later on in the piece. But what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Well, the, I think that as there was pressure here in the U.S. to get these CEFs off and uh, running so too there will be these pressure to get just something out the door on OTFs. Yes, I'm glad you brought up that point. Okay, because I'm, I'm leading I'm on you a in here all over the place. I'm on a no, roll. No, I am on a roll leading you in. Uh, yeah, you're doing great with the leads. So I kind of looked back because this, you know, the issues. The the point that Agilus makes is that CEFs and OTFs are very very similar. There are some differences, but they're very very similar. They're and the big thing is going to be the unilateral kind of being able to operate together. Sorry, and, well, cross jurisdiction, they will be considered the same from a regulatory perspective. So right. if you're trading cross jurisdiction. So I looked back and I remember, you know, CEFCON, you know, I, I've been to CEFCON the past few years. And I remember going there when CEFs were kind of in the early stages. And, um, you know, one of the things that was brought up was around how because these CEFs were kind of pushed through. They had this deadline. They had this mandate they had to get. A lot of the things, a lot of some of the standardization around onboarding clients to the CEFs and whatnot, a lot of the standardization around symbols wasn't sorted because it was just, let's get this out. We got to hit this deadline. And then that causes more issues. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing it, you know, you'd think Europe would kind of look at what happened in the U.S. and say, these were some mistakes that made. Let's kind of change this. And now we're falling down into the same rabbit hole. And I think that, you know, I think it's fair to characterize the CEF scene here in the U.S. as being disappointing. Um, while, to my knowledge, there wasn't any specific percentages that the CFTC and SEC had put around how much uh, volume they hoped would be traded on CEF, um, on a swap execution facility, it hasn't been high, uh, largely because these train platforms, um, they're just dealing basically in two instruments here. Um, uh, what do you have? Your uh, index credit default swaps and your vanilla just interest rate swaps when basically everything in the derivative space was supposed to be going down that path. Um, I haven't done this recently, but um, if you do, you can cross-reference uh, Claris Financial Technology. It has uh, this report called CEFVIEW, one word, S-E-F-VIEW, and you can cross-reference that with the DTCC's um, SDR information. And you can see that the results are just a little bit disappointing, again, because of the fact that, in, in many reasons, but they haven't had the products onto this that they were, I think, were hoping to have by now. I mean, we're, almost, we're what now, going on three years in here um, from when it first went live. 
similarly, I think that you can expect. I think that we're, you know, a couple of years in after OTRs are lost or launched, I think that there will be a similar disappointing quote unquote feel um, toward that implementation. Uh, there's no reason to think that, especially with the complexity of the European market, that that's going to go any more smoothly. Um, it doesn't sound like that's happening right now. I just, you know, to, to take a line from Zoolander, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills here, right? Like, we're seeing the same mistakes that were made a couple of years ago in our markets. Now it's falling down the same path. And I understand there needs to be more transparency, pre-trade, post-trade. I, I, I get that aspect of wanting to get these in place. I, so to your point about, you know, the big thing is that this is going to kind of level the playing field, so to speak, in terms of cross-border regulation, right? In terms of the, the OTFs and the CEFs. Yeah. Now, I know that there's still some differences. It's, it's interesting because this topic essentially came up at CEFCON a couple of years ago. And basically, a lot of the folks said, there's no way. That'll never happen. Kind of the, the, the horse has left the barn, so to speak. You know, uh, uh, Rick McVeigh, the chairman and CEO of Market Access, said... Uh, you know, my guess is that the horse has left the barn. We're going to see key differences in the rules, and there's not much that can be done changing it. It's unfortunate for swap markets that used to act more globally. So, you know, maybe that didn't necessarily pan out the way that he thought, and it's, you know, not fair to always pull up quotes from a couple of years ago. But oh, sorry, And but to be fair, I, the one thing you got to say with this is, all right, so from what we're talking about, okay, right, from a technology perspective, the differences aren't that monstrous, Right. There is some nuance that market access might be dealing in that some of these other firms sure. might be dealing in that is significantly different. And but that does, has nothing to do with technology per sure. se. It has more to do with registration, with who's involved, with legal um, agreements and stuff like that. So I guess just to throw that out there. And to that point, I think that what we're going to see is firms are going to pull out and they're going to say, I'm just going to I have to worry about so much stuff on the home front that I can't be bothered with now these new you know, regulations, and I need to manage what's going on in my backyard. Well, again, I you start it. just like with CEFs here. You start with your vanilla interest rate swaps, you know, something that's easy. Um, you know, it's uh, um, and then uh, the other ones. Uh, you can do that. You can do the simple stuff just to prove a concept and that, yes, a CEF does, in fact, work. Yes, and uh, an OTF will work. But... Are you really going to move the whole swap space in Europe over to one of these, you know, by 2018 and on in 2018, whatever the deadline rollouts are for the different products? I don't think so. I think that you'll see this Russian implementation of the easiest instruments go on. And then from there, you know, we'll see the good with the bad and then just take a long, long time. But the problem with that is, as you're seeing over here in the U.S., we now have a new administration that has a lot of different feelings towards CEFs. Um, and towards Dodd-Frank in general. So, you know, when you wait long enough to get these things going, well, a lot of issues, a lot of change happens and issues arise. Sure, yeah. I mean, I guess the one kind of maybe saving grace, one interesting point to mention is that, you know, under MIFID regulation, there was already these multilateral trading facilities, which could maybe kind of be looked at as, you know, an in-between that maybe helps this transition because those are already in place, or I, I don't know. European stuff, I don't know. <laughs> That's, I think, a good point to uh, to end it on. So we're going to take a pause here real quick, and we're going to bring on Amelia David to talk about her feature, which looks at RFQ platforms and the rise of ETFs. All right, and we're now joined by our U.S. colleague, Amelia David. Woo! Yay! A uh, repeat uh, a peer of... of person on our podcast that was terrible (laughs) someone that's been on the podcast before 
And she she was not in here before, but we were praising how lucky we were that my Toronto trip was canceled because we get to talk about these two great features. And now she's in in our studio to discuss her feature, which looks at RFQ platforms and the rise of ETS. So before we get into grilling you with all our questions, how about, Amelia, you just give us 30,000 foot view, general overview of what your story looks at. Sure. Um, so RFQ platforms are apparently growing in volume, um, but this is specifically request for quote quote just for for those that might be listening might not know. Go on. You know, Tony, I could have probably said the okay. <laughs> and okay, so request for quote platforms parenthesis RFQ platforms. Um, um, the for RTFs, uh, ETFs, sorry, ETFs specifically, um, they're growing in volume, and this is just basically looking at does it help ETFs as a big market because everybody thinks it's like the the new thing everyone's going to flock to. Will these platforms help, or is it just another way of trading something that's popular? Mm-hmm. Sure. So. I think, you know, we can go a couple different ways with this. Or did you have, you look at your rice The The biggest thing that stands out to me is, right, this is kind of a way to usurp. Is that the right word? Usurp. Usurp. Uh, <laughs> or get rid of voice trading. I just don't see that happening. I think that voice trading is a staple of this industry. I think if you look at finance in general, it's an old boys network. It's, you know, it's changed. Not, that's not, you know, it's diverse and, you know, it's gotten more diverse. But at the end of the day, it's, guys from Ivy League schools that went to fraternities that know each other and they build relationships and they go into all these firms and they're going to pick up the phone and be able to make a, make a trade. And it just makes you wonder, why do we even write about technology in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, well, I think in certain markets, you know, the equities obviously is, is a lot different, but I think in this specific space, I just think that that's just never going to go anywhere because of how complex things are, that voice trading is always going to be here. And while it's nice that this RFQ platform has kind of got had a, this renaissance, I think at the end of the day, voice trading will always be voice trading. What is your take or what maybe from the sources that you spoke to, what are your thoughts on that perspective or that opinion? I mean, so voice trading is kind of like an RFQ as well. So, I mean, this is just, RFQ platforms are just basically just faster and like electronic ways of trading, of basically doing the same thing. But I actually do believe that voice trading is never going to go away. And... I, I go into it a little bit, and some of the people I talked to also said that sometimes if you really, if you want to protect um, the information or the, the block sizes that you want to, um, that you want to trade, sometimes it's really best to call somebody you, you trust a lot, who you know is going to give you the best price. But that, what they mean with using RFU platforms is that if you're not that concerned or for for this particular block that you're trading, or if it's just, um, if it doesn't require anything different and bespoke, go ahead and go through the RFQ platforms because then you'll get a big block size of ETFs without having to um, split it up like you have to do usually in an exchange. I do not think voice trading is gonna go away in, or, or that even an RFQ platform is going to supersede what it gives to traders. It's just, it, if you have a really like different trade, you'd wanna go the more traditional 
voice trading. Well, I think, and obviously, yes, obviously voice trading is never going to go away. That's not going to happen. But with that said, the whole point of technology is to make things more efficient and transparent and easier. Um, so, as you said, with institutional traders, even though they're only trading at 1% of the ETF market, yeah, I think right now you had written. it's still very low. <laughs> so, very, very small amount of a, you know, a, of a growing market. market. Um, but as Reggie Brown said uh, of Cantor and the guy he's called the godfather ETFs, um, in the article he was telling you that, you know, that institutional hasn't been getting on board with this, but that there is a little bit of a shift that's happening there. Um, but we're still a ways away from that institutional side from picking up. But if RFQ platforms are going to have success, it will be because uh, institutional traders looking to trade large blocks will find it easier um, using the platform itself or voice, but not on exchange. Um, where And then the audit trail is going to be big from a regulatory yeah. perspective. That's something else that several people in your article yeah. have talked about. Uh, I the the difference of course is like of course that's not it's not to say that voice trading cannot have an audit trail a lot of the voice tra trading companies are coming out with like monitoring capabilities like ipc i know um has recording features coming out or has already come out but this is already built into the platform mm -hmm. and this is of course uh, these are platforms like bloomberg and tradeweb that are already in people's desks, in their screens. So they know how it works, and they know what kind of audit trail it has because it's already built in for other asset classes that aren't ETFs. Yeah. So. And I think that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, like so for fixed income traders, which you get into in the story, that's one area that I've done a little bit of look at myself, specifically around fixed income ETFs. And it's about kind of a comfort level and being familiar with something. So in the fixed income side, um, this is a little bit more commonplace for him. And Nick Hodge from BlackRock, I think he had a good quote here saying, um, uh, trading ETFs on exchange can be bewildering to a bond buyer. Uh, it's hard to convince them to use an algorithm to discreetly trade a large block order that will take them the whole day. We saw it here in one of our desks. They used an algorithm and it took them the whole day, but the next day they used an RFQ platform and in 15 seconds, they put three dealers in competition with the straight through process that had this immediacy of risk transfer. That right there will be, if that can be proven, out throughout the whole industry, that's what will drive adoption. Similarly, in the fixed income space, when I was writing that article in the past, you know, fixed income was dominated by the retail, fixed income ETFs yeah. um, were dominated by the retail side. But uh, it was technology that helped spur the growth and growth and move the market from one that was dominated by retail and wealth managers to one that's increasingly uh, attracting institutional investors on the buy side. Um, and that was because of advancements through pricing matrices, pricing matrices and platforms, uh, new forms of risk modeling, and kind of inventive ways of creating and redeeming fixed income ETFs. Technology is that kind of driver in yeah. this space, I would say. Yeah, and also, and I get into it in the, in the, in the piece, a lot of fixed income traders, not just fixed income ETFs, they usually start off as just fixed income traders first, mm -hmm they already use a type of RFQ platform because there's very little liquidity in that market. So this is something they know, these kinds of platforms are something they're very, very familiar with. Because 
it can be inferred that because of the lack of liquidity in the fixed income market, they moved to fixed income ETFs. Um, and it's so much easier for them to use something that they know. And it's kind of like a gateway drug of sorts for trading ETFs. And mm -hmm. Reggie Brown talks about this, which is really interesting to me, is that when you first start off, and if you're very familiar with something like an RFQ platform, you're going to want to gravitate towards that and do a lot of your trading on it. Maybe you trade some on the exchange once you you get really comfortable with it, and then you start also um, making these, um, creating these relationships. So you start also doing voice trading. So kind of like a gateway drug for traders that haven't really traded a lot of ETFs or just starting to get into it, and they want to do something first that they can you know, quickly turn around. So if this is the marijuana, then what is the hardcore heroin, I guess? But <laughs> <laughs> no. All three? I don't know. <laughs> no, I think that's the, kind of the one of the more interesting points. You know, like you said, Reggie Brown talks about at the end of your story. He said, it's improving transparency to, this is speaking about RFQ platforms for ETFs. It's improving transparency to the least informed investor who doesn't understand the composition of the ETF. Once you've exited that education cycle, most people adopt multiple ways of engagement. So I think what we're seeing now is we're seeing a massive surge into the ETF space, right? And so because there are a lot of people that aren't familiar with it, they're saying, okay, let's try this RFQ platform. This is kind of a way for us to get educated. But then as they kind of learn the ropes and understand where to go, it's easier, I think, for a lot of these folks are going to say, okay, well, we can go a lot of different routes. Yeah. And that's where I think we might see a plateau. So it's surging now, but I don't know if that's sustained growth in terms of specifically yeah. for the RFQ platform. Yeah. Not to say it's going to disappear, but I think it's going to, you know, evolve. I mean, it's definitely, um, Nick Hodge from BlackRock talks about a mix or a balance of platforms a lot. And I think that is, I mean, in any asset class, a mix of plat trading platforms is always good because you never really know where you're going to find the best price, the best liquidity. And uh, that's what's going to happen is that now we now there's a way to trade blocks easier and more efficiently faster definitely so uh, if you if you want to do something that's if you want to trade a smaller size go ahead go to the exchange you want to you know not advertise to everyone on the platform that you're looking for i don't know 5 million 15 million ETFs Go ahead, call somebody up, but it's it's really based on whatever the trader thinks is best for what the order he wants. Then it's it's best to have a mix. Um, if we don't have a mix, then they'll just they're just stuck with what whatever's out there. I think that's a good point to leave it at. And uh, before we go, we'll you know we always got to talk about something non fintech. <laughs> and you know, there the Oscars are coming up this Sunday, and we're you know spitballing what's a good idea to talk about. The three of us can discuss. The Oscars, and then we realized that between the three of us, I think we've seen two of the ten <laughs> nominated Best Pictures. Not for the lack of trying. <laughs> Not for lack of trying, but for, well, for lack of trying on my part. I haven't tried to see any. I mean, I've, I tried, but um, $14 for each movie is not. Oh, you can buy from the from our office. We got we got a deal. Well, also, I don't have anybody to watch it with. <laughs> okay, yeah, womp womp womp. We're gonna bring down no, the mood. I am not going to be watching like a super serious movie alone. Like like say Moonlight or I don't know whatever what what else is serious. Fences. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, well, regardless, we decided to move away from the movies and. Uh, 
you know, if sports are Tony and I's, uh, Anthony and I's <laughs> wheelhouse, please, the theater is Amelia David's wheelhouse. I sit next to her, and every single day I hear her rapping the lyrics to Hamilton. She is a theater, a musical junkie. She follows the space. Uh, she was just informing us about some hot take with a New York Times uh, critic that uh, <laughs> got into some hot water. So I guess let's talk a little bit about you want we're going to talk about Amelia's favorite place. Basically, what would you recommend for obviously Hamilton? Everyone knows, okay, and you're not going to go see Hamilton unless I mean, plenty of our listeners are probably very rich and yeah, probably can afford it. that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but give us give us some of those maybe the little off, bit off Broadway, the radar. Well, you know, Broadway, but you know, not quite as in everybody's <laughs> face. I was going to say Hamilton, but you know. <laughs> You, you need that's like ticket. yeah that's a hundred. I could say that. That's I don't know anything about thousand dollar ticket right there. Um, so I haven't seen it yet, but um, we have a benefit on the. We have like discounts for theater. Yes. So one of the plays that I want to see and have been recommended to me is a play called Dear Evan Hansen. Um, it's so the lyricists and the music is was made by the same guys who made the La La Land songs. Okay. So it's a musical? It's a musical. Okay. So, okay, so I hated La La Land. <laughs> I like the songs, and I've heard some of the songs for Dear Evan Hansen. It's about a kid who was bullied, I guess. And so uh, I was almost going to see it off-Broadway, but it was already sold out, and now it's like one of the, the best plays out there, musicals out there. Um... What I have uh, seen recently, I saw um, great um, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. It is supposed to be about War and Peace. I have never read War and Peace, but I do like Josh Groban. Who doesn't? <laughs> dreamy. <laughs> so dreamy. Get lost in his eyes. <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting play. I didn't much like the story, which probably means I will not like the book. What's the best one you've seen recently? Best one I've seen recently. What, wait, what have I seen recently? Um, oh, crap. It's, oh, no, I forgot what I was... Um. I can jump in here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I saw a play uh, about a year ago. Uh, it's called Blackbird. For Now, uh, first of all, I'm not... That, yep. Yeah, I'm not a big play person. My girlfriend got a guilt or whatever Groupon. She got a good deal. So it, her mother recommended we go see it. And uh, we went to it. Didn't know much going into it. And, uh, you know, if you're familiar, well, to, uh, not spoiling anything, but the movie is about pedophilia. <laughs> and <laughs> it is a yes. two-person two play with Jeff Daniels. Yes, that Jeff Daniels from Dumb and Dumber. And with uh, Michelle, uh, Michelle, Williams Michelle Williams of Dawson's Creek fame. Okay? Someone that if you saw, you'd probably recognize. And it's a very intense play as you can imagine because it's about pedophilia and it's just essentially those two on uh, the for the entire play i think there's uh, two cameos uh you know which i won't spoil because that would spoil it but there's two cameos outside of those two in the entire play and it's about a conversation they have about a past experience you know uh yeah. jeff daniels being the uh attacker and and michelle williams being the attacker. i i actually saw that I liked it. I really, really liked it. Um, I was so depressed. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those. I, th I think I saw it in the you know in the middle of winter, and you go out, and the you're, it's like cold, and you feel dirty. You feel like you need to take a shower. Uh, it's just it, it, so, so when I watched it, fittingly because I was hungry and also broke, 
because um, it wasn't payday yet. I and me and my friend after watching went inside a McDonald's. It was the Eighth Avenue McDonald's, which I read in a New York Times article, is where they do a lot of drug deals. Nice. And a lot of the homeless people also stay there, so it was. Or you get your ETF for a few. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you get your sources. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was very fitting for the end of that play. Yeah. I felt depressed about humanity. To that point, though, the one other play I just remember that I did see, same thing, guilt offering or something like that, <laughs> was uh, what's the name of the? It's a it's an opera. With the uh, Hansel and Gretel, right? That's the little kids and the candy. Yes. yes, I saw that. That was awesome. Okay, that was really cool. Cool visuals, lots of good singing. Um, but my one thing, and I know Anthony, you're gonna jump in here. The one thing that sucks about going to see plays is it's so goddamn expensive. Oh. Everything is so okay. much freaking money. So here's the deal. Every time I, I know I said fourteen dollars for a movie, I hate it. But I also spend like upwards of a hundred dollars for each Broadway play. But see, the thing is, I can download illegally or legally a movie, or watch it on. You do it legally. That's, she it never does that illegally. <laughs> or watch it on HBO. It's, it comes out on Netflix. So I sometimes it just can't justify paying fourteen dollars for something I can watch on Netflix. I can't watch Broadway plays or musicals, so if I, I consider it my spend, like my big spend for the for the month. I agree. Let's see. I've been the only play I've been to recently was I saw the Book of Mormon last year, and it was fun. You know, it was good, entertaining time. But you know, first of all. I am a sophisticated individual. It may, I may not always come off that way, and I'm not going to sound sophisticated right now. But you know, the, the, sometimes just the people that are there and stuff like that, you just hear them talking around you, and you just want to kind of punch them in the face. But you know, the, and this whole thing that I got to be locked into my seat, like I don't like that. You know, I, you know, I just. How do you watch a movie, yeah. Tony? But a movie, if you get up and just you know sneak out, no real big deal. Think about a big Broadway play auditorium. You know, if you're somewhere in the middle, if you're not right on the end. Everybody's got to get up. Everybody behind you. It, yeah. it kind of becomes this awkward kind of scene. It's like, oh, and there is an intermission, but what if I want to wait till your intermission? You know anyway, so I don't like that whole thing. I feel a little get back to the airplane thing. I feel a little claustrophobic there. But I will say this: I understand the cost of it. But what I don't get is people look down. So when I, my girlfriend and I, sometimes I take her out to the racetrack because you know I'm a. Uh, that's the kind of guy I am. Well, classy. Um, classy, classy. Royalty do, does go to the racetracks. Exactly. But to get into a racetrack only costs a couple bucks. You know, if you're not, you know, if it's not Belmont Day and you're not trying to sit in uh, the fancy seats, you know, a couple bucks just to get in. And the way I always look at it is, all right, so I spend $100 at the, at the betting window. Okay, that's me experience. That's $100. I don't care if I lose it. It's $100. But I have a chance of walking out of that place with a little <laughs> extra money in my pocket. Whereas that when I leave the op, uh, the the play, after I paid twenty dollars for a beer and paid my whatever hundred dollars it was for the seat, I better come away with a moving experience that that stays well, with me. Otherwise, then I really so, feel like so I wasted the thing my time. When I watched Great Com Great Comet, um, my seat was actually on stage seating because they had they they made it to look as if it was a salon. So that if you get off the stage, go back and you look even more awkward. You know, <laughs> but so what was happening was the characters, the actors would sit beside you, would interact with you, oh, which know. which I actually hate. <laughs> so yeah. Oh, the most recent play I saw was Matilda, and it was re it's really amazing. Unfortunately, it's closed now. But 
but and just <laughs> just but, but that had a very good like experience after because number one I liked the movie and I liked the book and it was it was interesting. The only problem was that of course there were a lot of children. So it was a lot noisier than normal. And to clarify about my point, I wasn't talking about the cost of the ticket. I was talking about the cost of the food and drink when you're inside. I'm a big snack guy. I'm a big, I like to partake in some alcohol consumption. And it is crazy expensive. I think when we went to, um, to, uh, to, um, Hansel and Gretel, it came with like two glasses of champagne. And before I, uh, gave them the thing, they're like, oh, two glasses of champagne, that'll be $64. Like and, it's and it's crazy also very expensive. bad alcohol. I had like a glass of wine at one play. It was American Psycho, which was bad. Um, and I was like, I need something stiffer than this to enjoy this horrible thing that I'm watching right now. So there it was, you go. It's horrible. Word to the wise: bring a flask. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's it for today. Uh, Anthony, Amelia, you have anything else to add? Well, thanks so much for listening in, and uh, be sure to tune back in next Thursday.